Hello and welcome to the Primary PE Huddle Podcast, brought to you by Aspire Sports. I'm Dan Hayes and I'll be leading you through this podcast. Aspire Sports is a passionate family who all believe that PE, sport and physical activity are essential for children to develop a love of healthy living and to end physical inactivity forever. We've proven that working in collaboration with school leadership teams, PE subject leaders, teachers and all PE practitioners positively impacts the sustainability of schools embedding a powerful physical curriculum and essentially helps more children be more active more often. Through this podcast series, we aim to discover the power behind PE school sport and physical activity in primary schools, the impact this has on the whole school, the impact it has on pupils' holistic development, and the secrets behind the successful implementation of a powerful physical curriculum. This is what makes up the primary PE huddle. We won't be alone through this journey. We're joined by PE subject leaders, school and academy senior leadership teams and experts in the field of primary education who all share what physical activity means to them, how they use it as a a tool to positively impact children and young people and what they believe in the primary PE huddle. Our guests perform a deep dive on topics such as creating sustainable, high quality PE, the benefits of physical activity, a top-down collaboration to embed a physically active ethos and sharing of best practice from their own experiences to create an enthusiastic culture towards a healthy and active lifestyle. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your pods. So today I've got a couple of people joining me. I've got Andrew Stanton, uh, who is one of my colleagues, and Andy Daly-Smith. I'll let them do their own uh, introductions because I just won't do it justice, as I never do. So on that note, Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Dan. Yeah, a brief introduction to myself. I'm Head of Education at Aspire Active Education Group. So I lead on the development of all of our programmes, including our physically active learning programs. So maths on the move, and we're currently putting together an English equivalent, English on the move. Um, Prior to this, I was a primary school teacher and I was responsible for PE, school sport and physical activity across the school. And that's where I first saw firsthand the impact that physical activity can have on the children that I teach. So I've always been a big advocate of creating opportunities for children to be active And that's why I've been really looking forward to this episode, because we're speaking to our guest today, Dr. Andy Daly-Smith, who brings such a wealth of experience and knowledge in childhood physical activity, both from a research perspective, as well as an expert understanding in creating active schools. And I'm sure we'll cover the Creating Active Schools framework during this episode. But for now, welcome to the podcast, Andy. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for the uh, introduction, Andrew and Dan. And I'm uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about school-based physical activity and physical active learning. Fantastic. So, Andy, you're currently a reader in physical activity and healthy childhood at the University of Bradford. Could we start off with just explain to us and the listeners what that actually is and what the role of a reader at a university entails? Yes, it's a typical academic uh, fancy title, but basically what it means is I I just engage in research. So my job is to be a research leader at the University of Bradford. Um, I also work at the Wilson Centre for Applied Educational Research, where I'm the co-director. 
where physical activity is one of our key themes around reducing social inequality uh, for children and young people. And my final title uh, is Associate Professor for Physical Active Learning at uh, HVL in Norway. Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's... A, list, a list longer than my own name is quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive credentials and it gets a bit lengthy on letters, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so... Getting getting into um, where you are now and moving a bit before that, actually, uh, can you tell us a bit more about how you got to that point, your professional journey? And along that journey, was there a key moment which led to your specific interest in physical activity? Yeah, I'll, I'll shorten it because it could be the whole podcast. But um, when I graduated from university, I, I ended up working on a residential weight loss camp for children and young people. And that's where I sort of furthered my interest with children and young people, physical activity, health and well-being. Fast forward kind of seven or eight years and I, I was lecturing at Leeds Beckett University and, and looking at doing a PhD and it was actually at a conference in America where it was the last session being run by three policymakers and the last question of the last se- session was uh, what would you recommend as, that we do as researchers to try and integrate more physical activity within schools? And all three of them said you need to demonstrate the link between physical activity, cognition and academic performance. So that really was the start of my journey, um, or more formalised journey that began in 2012. Uh, so since then, I uh, undertook a PhD and focused that around physically active learning And then alongside that PhD and since that PhD, I've done lots of work around school-based physical activity, predominantly around physically active learning and looking at multi-stakeholder input into that. So listening to the views of teachers, researchers, policymakers to understand what they think are the important components for a physically active learning teacher training program and how we embed that across a whole school infrastructure but then more recently is broadening beyond physically active learning to look at how do how do we create organizational change for physical activity within schools and move beyond these kind of individual interventions that schools seem to have lots of appetite for, but they only tend to last for a short period of time before they move on to the next thing. And it makes it's made physical activity very fragile in the past and not sustained because when the next thing comes along or there's a greater need to focus on educational performance physical activity often gets dropped so it's how do we integrate these things into the kind of culture and ethos of a school so they don't get dropped when more important things come along and and actually they are one of the most important things yeah and i think it's that culture and ethos which uh sometimes and just working on the ground with schools we find that every school has at least one person if not a couple of people that, that really want to integrate that but struggle they come across common common barriers and and you see where it succeeds it's it's we talk about this um with other episodes in this podcast series where some people think it's a top-down approach some people think it's a bottom-up approach of, of how we actually start to to embed this ethos across all schools in the country you mentioned about speaking to multiple different stakeholders um in in your past experience do you find that there is a big um differentiation in viewpoints based on people's roles and 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 within education definitely and and i think the greatest example of this was when we were designing the creating active schools framework uh, we used something called the uk design council double diamond approach 
and we moved the stakeholders between what we called same stakeholder grouping. So that was where all the teachers together were together, all the head teachers were together, policy makers, public health, etc. And we moved them into mixed stakeholder groupings where there was one of each stakeholder. And what we saw was within the same stakeholder groupings, the same learning emerged that you would expect to emerge from that particular group. So the teachers weren't really discussing anything novel that we weren't already aware of. But actually, when we put them into the mixed stakeholder groupings, we saw because they were bouncing ideas and conversations off each other, that new emerging started to um, new learning started to emerge. And for me, that's the that's where we need to start to move now with school based physical activity is to incorporate the viewpoints and understanding from these different perspectives. Just to go back to what you said earlier around, is it a bottom up or a top down? It's both. You know, it, it, it is fundamentally a whole school approach and there are multiple factors that we need to address, whether it's a whole school approach to physical activity or whether we're talking about physically active learning specifically. We need to make sure we're addressing all those different factors at, at each level of the school system. So whether it's the children that we're working with whether it's the teachers that we're training to embrace physically active learning, whether it's the wider staff, you know, so we're creating positive social environments that those those teachers can operate within, or it's the senior leadership team or the governors. Each particular stakeholder plays a role within that school environment. Yeah, speaking about that, the top-down approach, I saw, I think I saw an example of this in the start of lockdown last year where a lot of parents were becoming more immersed in what they were doing with the, the schooling and... Um, some of the work that they were doing, their children's year five or year six work in grammar, um, left parents feeling, why are they learning this? What's the relevance of this? But sometimes those questions were directed at the teachers themselves when really they've got this curriculum they have to deliver and they can't deviate too much from there. So it, it poses the question, does it really have to start with something, a big change at the top, where then the teachers can they have the freedom to deliver in a certain manner when they're in their schools on the ground teaching to the children. Yeah, I, I think with a curriculum, the, the curriculum dictates what needs to be learned fundamentally, but it doesn't dictate how that's learned. So they're two different things. And I think with physical activity, we're more in the how rather than the what. So, you know, children, the obesity plan states children need to do 30 minutes worth of physical activity a day and that school should be offering that to all, to, to all children. But it doesn't necessarily dictate how that's done. So for me, that's where it's probably slightly different. But when, you, when we're talking about physical activity, there is some top-down pressure from the government, which is, I think, a positive thing. Um and then when you get to this kind of head teacher or senior leadership team level, that top down pressure can only go so far. You know, at that, while a head teacher in a primary school especially has a significant amount of influence, if you have teachers who are resistant to that change, it can become extremely difficult. And we've worked with some schools who've had those experiences of a very positive head who wants to create uh, cultural change of physical activity in a school but resistance at a lower level. And we've also seen that the other way around, which is which is fundamentally why you need both. I think what, what's coming out of some of our most recent research is we need active engagement. So there's lots of kind of head teachers or senior leadership teams that passively sign up to things and then leave it to their, you know, their subject leads, for example, to to get on with it or the or particular teachers. 
But unless they actively engage and show real interest, the programs still tend to fall over. And that doesn't mean they need to lead it themselves, but actually going to, so your grammar example, going to visit lessons to see how they're delivered, showing the teachers that they're interested in what's taking place, tends to have a much more positive influence than those head teachers who are a little bit more passive in their leadership style. Fantastic. I um, I read a piece by yourself um, on the implementation of physically active learning a while ago, and it discussed some teachers' perceptions of physically active learning and also discussed some barriers which stop physically active learning occurring. What would you say the main barriers are that, that stop it from taking place? we we got all day Um, we're actually just writing a paper so I can give you some novel insights we've done something called a metasynthesis which is a a review of all the qualitative research um, around teacher implementation Uh, and actually I think there's two things that underpin whether teachers take physically active learning on one is whether it's meaningful to them so do they see that physically active learning is part of their job? And what, what I mean by that is, does it align with their values as a teacher and their beliefs around what they have as a teacher? And if they, if they don't, and we can't sell physically active learning in a powerful enough way, they're not going to say what we call adopt physically active learning. You know, they're not going to show an in, initial interest in it. The second thing is a, what we call a belief in their own capability to deliver it. So there's lots of work that we need to do around building up a teacher's belief in themselves. And the way we need to do that, or way the research evidence suggests, which comes from the mouths of teachers, is that we need to um, introduce physically active learning slowly. So we shouldn't be expecting somebody to do you know, embodied learning, delivering uh, physically active learning, integrating movement in the playground to understand the solar system. You know, that, that is not your first lesson. Your first lesson might be a simple activity where you're doing number relays to learn times tables, as an example, or using tag to answer questions and if you get those questions wrong to then stand on the spot while someone comes and reads you a question you know uh, uh, an addition question you, you answer that you get it right and then off you go again so what that does is it reduces the chance of failure and we know you know ironically we talk about growth mindset in pupils we know that teachers need to develop a growth mindset you know they need to be resilient they need to understand that things don't always go right in the classroom and schools and head teachers and senior leadership need to create a, a really um safe culture that allows teachers to trial and fail with a small f obviously we don't want major failings because that can have ramifications down the line but if your odd lesson goes wrong it doesn't matter as long as you learn from that and change for next time and probably that one of the biggest things that underpins this, if we talk about specific barriers, it all comes down to behavior management. So once you've built that belief in their capability that they actually have the skills, and, and let's be honest, te- many teachers are already delivering physical active learning. They just don't call it that. So when we come along with this new term, they go, oh, that sounds really scary. Well, if you ask them, do your children move around the classroom? Do you take them out into the playground occasionally and, you know, and do your... Uh, numeracy work with chalk on the playground that's physically active learning so actually we showcase they've already got the skills but once we're kind of there the next bit the major bit for me is the behavior management Um, and it links it links to the research literature where it talks about those teachers who are confident in delivering physical education have no issues with delivering physically active learning because it's a very similar skill set managing a group beyond the classroom typically 
but also managing movement within the classroom. So if we can, there's almost a need to enhance the quality of physical education teacher training and or physically active learning. And I think the two actually uh, would work quite closely together. On that link, I was going to say, because when you were mentioning about the behaviour management side of things, from from past steps within within my career in supporting teachers on the ground with their ongoing CPD and mentoring, it's the biggest surprise that I would see from from teachers. And it's something I knew whether they're an NQT, whether they've been in for a couple of years or 30 years, some of the teachers I worked with, was actually what you do in physical education is is no different. The principles are no different to the classroom. And when you make that click and that link, it, it, it clicks with them. Um, and it, it is that approach of the behaviour management was a big thing because they're not in their classroom, mm. in, in, in their space where they know every inch of that room and so do the children. They're in a different environment. It can sometimes throw things out and make them forget, from my experience, make them forget how good they are at what they do. Uh, but as soon as you mm. make that link, it, it's really positive. Um, you, you mentioned there about the um, the research. You mentioned you know yourself and, and everything's going on in Scandinavia with physical active learning. In the UK, it's definitely growing momentum, and over in the US as well. Um, and there's key points to take away from that research. So, for a quick takeaway and a, a quick yes no question, I suppose, would you encourage teachers to read that research? And and what do you think the uh, the key things schools can learn and teachers individually can learn from that research? I'd, I'd actually flip it around, and I think this is where the research field is very very guilty. You know, we we write peer reviewed publications, and let's be honest, unless you're paid to do it. How many people are going to sit down and read a journal article? So I think researchers need to be better at communicating their findings to the practice field and sharing those findings with the practice field in easy to digest materials. The challenge with that is that we must not lose the sight of the way that data was collected because that has a major bearing on what the outcomes can be. So I think it's important when we do digest the material, we present the method and the understanding of how the data is collected because that shows the rigor behind the quality of the data. But then it's up to people like me to say, right, okay, how can we change these kind of peer-reviewed articles into short bite-size, whether they're written, captured in audio or short video that can be easily digested? You know, we, we know now that Anything beyond 10 minutes really doesn't really capture the interest because people switch off. So actually, why can't we as academics record a short 10-minute presentation or, or podcast, um, you know, sharing those results and share that more widely? Um, and, and I have to say, I do the same. You know, if I think about my own personal experience, I love reading and, and learning around organizational change, leadership you know, those kind of things. But I don't sit down and read academic papers on them. I tend to read books and I listen to podcasts. So I think it's about us adapting our messages to new mediums. In so terms it's all of on you, Andy. It's all on you, is it? Yeah, oh, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. Because teachers are very, very busy. You know, I, I'm a researcher who is 100% on the side of teachers. I will protect them to the end of the earth because I think they have one of the most difficult jobs, as parents now realise, having been through the, you know, the pandemic. Um, so I think it's our job to make their role and job easier. In terms of the major takeaways, having said all of that, it's I think the two key takeaways, and actually I was writing an introduction to a paper this morning that probably helps me to articulate this, is what I call simplexity. 
it's we need to make it simple, but it's also really complex. So to to onboard teachers to get them to adopt PAL, we need to make it really easy to help them get started. However, to in, to get teachers to use PAL in the way it needs to be used to get the benefits that are associated with PAL, and I'm not just talking about health benefits here. So moving up beyond, well beyond health benefits, for me it's looking at the um, academic achievement. Some of the results that we saw from the uh, the work we did with you guys around maths on the move looking at the feedback that's coming from the pupils around teamwork, social interaction, you know, those wraparound skills that actually, when we look at what 21st century employers want, literacy and numeracy is a given, but actually those pupils or, you know, students or employees eventually, who can show they can work as a team, they can communicate effectively, they've got good social skills, they are the pupils who are going to be employed for the you know the knowledge creation jobs when they when they leave school and university so for me this this kind of understanding of the complexity of what pal is and what all the factors are that need to come in to help create that and and again we could be here for an hour talking about that but fundamentally it comes down to a teacher's ability to deliver pal the belief in themselves making sure we provide enough resource to enable that to happen and that resource can take shape of time to plan and deliver the environment understanding the environments that they deliver in and providing suitable environments but also resources to help those teachers deliver so you know a very simple example that seems to come up again and again within the research literature is at the moment teachers or schools tend to buy into one particular physically active learning resource or kit and the danger is well what happens if you're a two-form entry school so let's say you've got 12 classes that do physically active learning that kit has to rotate around each one of those classes is it not better to put a more simplistic kit together that can sit in the cupboard in each individual classroom so when the teacher is using pal in a more autonomous way rather than sort of planned and prepared and thinks do you know what the energy levels of my pupils are dropping still need to cover some of this maths work i'm going to take them out onto the ground i can pull out the throw down spots with the numbers on we can do some simple numeracy or you know number bonds to 10 with those throw down spots everything's there so you I, I quite, oh, and I have to um, cite Professor Jim McKenna. Um, he talks about fuel and friction. So we've got to think how, how do we put fuel in the system to make things easier, and how do we reduce the friction? And that's a really good example for me of how we reduce the friction. Brilliant. I think touching on something you mentioned there, like if there's a lull in the day and the teacher knows they have to still do this maths work, I think teachers intuitively know without even seeing research sometimes, without seeing brain scans, they know that if it's, for example, been in a rainy day and the indoor breaks left, right and centre, that children need this opportunity to move around, prepare themselves to learn again in the classroom. So I think teachers know this. Um, but Going back to kind of initial teacher training and opportunities to get uh, teachers in their early stages of their career to know and understand this, would it be that um, there's kind of snippets given to them? Is it that they're given little bits of information and then they're told, you know, in your NQT year, it would be good to try um, a few lessons in a physically active manner? How would it work with you in terms of initial teacher training? 100% we need to embed this initial teacher training. The, the, the challenge is how, and, and I think you've alluded to some of the issues there, Andrew, around is it a specific module? 
And the answer is there's probably not enough room in the, the curriculum to do that. So I, I, I would say it's probably a two or three session training workshop in the uh, initial teacher training that's then we expect to see that in the lessons that they deliver as an NQT and it, that it, when they're being observed that they're the kind of things that have been looked for by the by the assessors the, the challenge that we have is if if we don't create those habits early on we're then trying to undo those habits once the teachers are in practice. So almost we're setting, not setting the teachers up to fail, but we're creating it, we're making it harder because they're learning to teach in one way that we then have to undo when they get into, well, when they become a qualified teacher and almost retrain again. Um, having said that, there are some examples um, across the globe of universities who are now starting to embed physically active learning whether it's an initial teacher training and i know before i before i left leeds beckett um university and this was one of the sort of the decisions that made it hard for me to leave is we set up an undergraduate module on physically active learning and many of those students would go into uh, go on to initial te- uh, initial teacher training pathways so we're kind of embedding those behaviors early and i think that the last sort of bit of the complexity of the piece of puzzle really is also when we're training those teachers, those trainee teachers, and they go into the school environments and they're being mentored by teachers who are in those schools, what's the attitude of those teachers towards physically active learning? Because quite quickly, that practice can get hammered out by the teacher who's already in practice who says, no, we don't deliver like that here. No, you, no, you need to deliver with your children sat down in a classroom. So it, it's about creating that that whole ecosystem that's going to support the delivery of power. Fantastic. I mean, this, and this is, this is really a lot of new information for myself because Andy, I know you've worked with Andrew um, again on the study and I was saying to Andrew before the podcast, actually, I'm going to be sat there as a listener, picking up on loads of new things myself, which is brilliant. (laughs) And just while you were saying it there, the question sprung to my mind of, um, is this something that can be filtered through? Is this something that physical active learning being embedded in schools across the country, is it something that can be done in three to five years? Or is it something that is a long-term goal that may take a decade with teachers filing through that, you know, all of th- th- this ethos and principle coming through the um, teacher training universities? Those universities you said where um, readers such as yourself have have got these studies and actually that could the easiest way for that to be implemented is those universities doing these studies like you did at Leeds Beckett embed it into their teacher training and then that and then that's that ethos is is built through the you know the new generations shall we say um but as you've mentioned we may have teachers that have been in the in the job um 30 40 years that are for it we may have those that have been in 30 40 years that are against it so I suppose it's some people may be thinking this is great but there's so much going on. We can't just throw it in. There's so we can't just throw it in. It's not going to work. Like you said, it's not going to have the, the legs to keep going. What are, your, what are your thoughts? How do you see this panning out? Do you think it's something that could be done in the space of a couple of years, five years, a decade? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's a that's another good question, and it's not an easy answer. I I would say to fully embed physically active learning across the entire education system is you're looking at probably twenty to thirty years. But that doesn't mean in the next three to five years that we can't make significant gains and um, start to change teacher behavior. And I think there's a few ways to do that. So there's, there's like the Maths on the Move program that Aspire deliver, which is around 
um, exter- you know, external experts going in and delivering with schools and maybe training teachers up alongside that so that you can bring some of this external expertise in, especially where I think what, what physical active learning is showing that it can be used with your pupils who maybe are not um, achieving their potential through traditional learning means and actually use some of that um, pupil premium spend to bring in some of that additional resource or uh, use some of the P school sport premium money because actually you've got a double benefit there of hitting a physical activity goal but also contributing to your um, your educational outcomes and actually what better way of spending this uh, you know COVID education recovery fund to have your pupils out in the playground learning rather than sat in a classroom and, and gaining more sedentary time so I think there are things we can do in the short term uh, but one of the ways we're trying to support it is through a European project that was funded by Erasmus Plus called Activate. We are um, the work that I talked about earlier is is uh, underpins a European physically active learning teacher training curriculum that will be launched in September. And that will be free free to access for anybody because the way what we want to do is we want organisations, whether they're private training providers, higher education establishments, um, uh, to use that curriculum to direct the development of their training programmes. We're also developing free to access uh, web based resources or, or web based CPD that can sit behind the more formal face-to-face programs because actually because there's there's a lot that needs to be developed like i said earlier to create successful teachers for physically active learning and if we can do some of that with some online material it then leaves that face-to-face time for more direct support to the teachers so i i know i've kind of partially answered your question um so i think the short answer is it's complex we can make quick wins in the next three to five years but it is a long journey about shifting the culture of schools yeah i know andrew's andrew's itching to jump on a question but before (laughs) i think because he's jotting down loads of questions on this and it's what i'm it's what i'm doing in my head as well but just really really quickly before i forget um for our listeners, would you be able to share after this podcast, and we can share it separately, would you be able to share information on where we can find that information? Is that okay? And we can share it with the podcast on where they can access yeah. that. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the, it will be on um, activatingyourclass.eu, um, and I can send you through the web links, but the curriculum will be released in September. Um, so basically, it's just keeping an eye on that website. And I can also send the links through to that when it's released. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I've got a couple of questions from to get get the opinion of a researcher really because i've always been fascinated about the impact that physical activity can have on obviously physical and mental health but then academic performance and you talked earlier about other things like you know it might increase the confidence or give children a chance to work together collaboration there's loads of other things um this podcast is going to be listened to by a lot of primary aged uh, teachers, teachers who are teaching primary children. Um, and one bit of research that I saw showed that children from the age of seven, they decrease year by year in the amount of physical activity that they do. Um, why do you think the main reason is that that happens? Is it purely the classroom setup or the other factors at play? Wow. Again, another good question. I keep, I keep repeating this, don't I? Um yeah, it's interesting. We used to think it was around the age of 12, and the more recent data is showing it's actually as early as seven. I think it's it's multiple factors that influence that physical activity decrease. 
In, to me, some of the headlines are, I think, the arrival of more sedentary learning. So this kind of progression from play-based learning in sort of reception and still hanging on into year one and this shift towards more um, kind of didactic, sat down, looking at the teacher at the front type learning does play a role. Um, one of the papers that I've just written recently shows that uh, the most inactive period in a child's day is during their maths and English lessons. And, and that, you know, that has to have a significant influence on that overall um, MVPA. But also there's some really interesting work by um, academics in the sort of field of uh, fundamental movement skills and they 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 say there's this window where a child's perception doesn't equal their reality and actually you have this window which is an opportunity when a child doesn't know how good they are or obviously vice versa to that you can develop their fundamental movement skills but there becomes a point in time where reality and perception are one and the same and they they say that window is around seven to eight where a child tends starts to realize whether they're good or not so good at something and I've probably recognized this in my own children where I've got two kids I've got one who is um highly competent you know I love watching him just move he's agile he's fast he uses his body really well and his confidence, you know, is fantastic to engaging things that are physical. My other child is less so. And when he got to the age of seven or eight, was making statements around, I, I don't want to do that, buddy, because I know I'm not that good at that. So, so what that then does is naturally he then starts to draw back from the traditional opportunities for physical activity, which tend to be sports-based. Now, and as a parent, as an academic who invests in physical activity, even I'm then racking my brain thinking, well, how the heck do I get him to be physically active? And we've gone out and saw climbing, riding bikes, swimming. But all of those things come with expense, you know, and we're very fortunate that we can afford to pay for those things for our, you know, for our children to do. But for families who are less fortunate and, and don't have those financial resources, that's a real challenge. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, that to me, it, there's a number of things that, that kind of come together. But I think those two especially are probably the two biggest influences that I've seen. But I think that that is going to be a, a real sort of area for future research to start to understand what's what is behind this drop off around the age of seven and eight. Yeah. And I think, like you said, the most sedentary points are when they're doing maths and English which which is is something that again like Andrew said teachers won't have to read um you know papers and see graphs and diagrams to 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 be aware of that they're aware of it already but I think that's Mm. where especially at that age the amount of time they spend in it they're spending in school that's where the responsibility can can come back actually fall onto school time and the importance actually then of not just physically active learning, but but you know general physical activity, like you said, not just sport. Looking at physical mm. activity, and there, there's those contributing factors. So I suppose if you were to just give your thoughts or, or advice to the teachers listening, to the schools listening, um, there'll be uh, external coaches that work in schools as well throughout the day and have multiple roles. What what do you think? are the key ingredients to achieving that that goal of whole school engagement in physical activity and, and I suppose how do we make sure that everyone understands the importance of 
physical activity, whatever shape and form that takes? So I, I think um, let's stop using the word physical activity and call it movement. You know, movement is really easy to understand. So if we, if, you know, if we work with schools and just say your children need to move, that's quite an easy thing to shift. Movement can be anything literally from stood up to vigorous exercise. When we use the word physical activity, unfortunately, it's been uh, integrated very closely with exercise. So people think moderate to vigorous physical activity straight away. And now we know that is about health enhancing physical activity. And that's the level we need to be at. But I think for many schools, even just movement, you know, walking is is important. In terms of what's the best takeaways for schools. So if if I was a, a teacher or a head teacher, my number one question is, where is physical activity in the school improvement plan? I would then be uh, looking at the effective spend of the P school sport premium, and I'll be making sure that that is clearly documented because that is a vast resource that is ring fenced for movement, you know, whether that's physical education, school sport, physical activity, um, and it's not always been used in the best way. However, where that is being used, in a great way, we're seeing exceptional work from schools. For me, next, it's then the sort of appearing policy and vision statements for the school. You know, do you have a school rule about movement? And then I think that the next thing is creating the social and physical culture, physical environments for, for movement. So what do your classrooms look like? What do your playgrounds look like? Do you have green spaces that you can use? How do you timetable your indoor active spaces do you prioritize those for physical education and movement-based learning or are they being used for other things that could actually go into different spaces Um, and then the social environment is make it acceptable so if a teacher decides to do some movement in their classroom and their children are a bit noisy or they take the kids out into the playground the other teachers accept that that is happening and they support that teacher and they're inquisitive and they want to learn from them there's not a corridor conversation going on behind the back saying, oh, God, did you see Andrew going out again today? They're so noisy, so distracting of my pupils. I wish he wouldn't do that. That is surefire way, the best way to stop anything happening in a school. Because um, you do not, well, very few teachers want to be seen as that rebel uh, in the work, rebel in the workplace who is, uh, you know, who's sort of doing things that everyone else disagrees with. Um, I, I think... Engage the kids as key stakeholders as well. You know, how often as adults, and I see this with some of the interventions that go into schools where we think, oh, this is a great idea, and I'm not going to name any, but let's make our children run around the playground for 15 minutes because that's absolutely fantastic. You know, that's one of the most dull experiences that you could possibly imagine, um, yet we think it's a fantastic idea to make children run around the playground. You know, the research literature for last 30 years has been telling us children hate cross cross country why that why the heck would they like running around the outside of a concrete playground it, it's not improve well it might improve them socially if they're talking to somebody but it's definitely not giving them a cognitive challenge and the, i can't imagine it's building passion in maybe more than 10 percent who already enjoyed running anyway so i think it's, you know, it's about placing those three things at the forefront of what you do Make physical activity and movement enjoyable because we know as adults, if you don't enjoy something, you're not going to continue engaging in it. And children are more hedonistic than adults. I'm certain that's the reason why um, some things are seen as as fads and fizzle out in schools and some things 
seem to last the test of time because if you've got something which the children buy into and it's well received by all the children that are doing it it's going to be much more much easier to keep its place in the timetable i just had another Mm. question andy about research and you mentioned all moving is important and mvpa so moderate to vigorous physical activities where the health benefits come in i've just got a question about the amount of time that children are active for and i um, i spoke to jade morris about this and, and she put it nicely in the fact that physically active learning could be put on a continuum from children who stand up in the class to answer a question right the way through to where the movement's absolutely integral to the learning. They might be measuring something out. Um, Is there a minimum amount of time that a child would need to be active for, for it to have an impact on them either academically or from a health perspective, or is all movement good? So uh, all movement's good, and the more you do, the better it gets, is, is the underlying message. In terms of how much a child should do a day, it's 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity, which is which is quite a lot, especially in the winter months um, when, you know, opportunities outside of school are, are greatly reduced. Underneath that, it becomes a little bit more complex. So if we're talking about what we call an acute effect, so an acute effect is I go and do one bout of physical activity. How long does that bout need to be to get some academic or cognitive benefit generally um the research literature still hasn't confirmed this but there's a suggestion somewhere around 10 to 12 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity that's sustained so not over a period of 45 minutes but over a shorter period hence why running programs are becoming quite popular um on the other side of that if we're looking for more kind of chronic adaptations which which we are you know we we want to sustain physical activity over an extended period of time if you can add 10 minutes into a every 10 minutes to every day that a child is in school that is a significant public health change you know that's incredibly difficult to do um and that 10 minutes would have the evidence would show that that would have benefits on their physical health. So it's, it's likely to help with weight maintenance and potentially reduction as long as as long as everything else stays consistent. And that's where the complexity comes in. But also in terms of what we call chronic adaptations that would improve um, academic achievement and cognition as well. So those studies that kind of show adding somewhere between 30 and 75 minutes a week of, of MVPA into the school timetable can benefit children academically um and and i think there's probably two mechanisms for that there's one where there's kind of brain restructuring and rewiring where you or you might be increasing your the blood vessels and they might be reaching other parts of the brain so that's called angiogenesis or it actually might just be if you're integrating physical activity within your learning content and that the children in the class are uh, are enjoying that more you know if you put greater enjoyment together with the need to to remember information you are more likely to be able to recall that information when it's asked for in a test so actually if you're out in the playground let's say you, you go into the woods and you measure the trees or you're collecting leaves to write a story your emotions will be higher your reward will be higher so you'll be remembering more what you do because it's a distinct memory 
Whereas if you're just learning every day, sat in the class doing the same thing, that doesn't stand out from the day before. So I think there's multiple ways that being physically active or increasing movement can help. And then yeah, I've shared some insights in, in sort of my opinions on what children need to do. I completely agree with you there, Andy. I can actually still vividly remember, I must have been in about year nine or year 10, and our physics teacher allowed us to do a tug of war to demonstrate what balanced and imbalanced forces were. And um, that, had a, that had a resounding effect on me, and I've never forgotten that. But if we'd drawn a diagram in our books showing the way the arrows move when the, the forces are unbalanced, I might not have remembered it. So I think it can be massively powerful to create these meaningful learning experiences. But given how important physical activity is, and it's a slightly different note this, but I'm interested to hear your opinion on tracking physical activity. Do you think it's needed that we track physical activity in a primary school at the primary school age? Um, and if we do, how would we go about doing it? Wow. Um, so uh, I think the number one lesson here is uh, human beings are not very good at recalling what they've done. So to, to accurately track physical activity, if we're talking about minutes of physical activity, you, you, have to, you have to measure it. You have to have monitors, an objective way to capture what's happened. Am I somebody who wants to go down the route of putting activity monitors on every child to track how active they are? Um, I think that I think there's still a lot of learning that needs to take place there. You know, I, I am aware of like and and have, have used tools like Moki, which I think have got huge potential to help shift the physical activity behaviours of children and you know teachers within schools and, and increase the physical activity levels of uh, children and teachers. So if, if we are using that data to shift the behaviour 100% and the, the challenge is getting tools that will give us feedback as quickly as possible that's as accurate as it possibly can be, that they can then be used to shift the behaviour that needs to change. Um, do we want to put them on every child? I, I, I think intermittently I don't see any issue with that, and especially if the outputs are combined into their learning as well. You know, th there was lots of work back in the early days around the use of pedometers to, and I, I did a piece of work with Redcar and Cleveland Borough Council where they had a pedometer project, and it was about incorporating the outcomes from the pedometer into the learning material for numeracy. Um, and I think they're good examples of how we start to bring the two together. The, 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 ch the challenge we've got is we need to be really careful that if we don't handle that correctly, we know that close monitoring of health behaviour can also end up in problems with that health behaviour. You know, people become addicted and pay far too much attention to it and become overly obsessive. And, you know, a good example is around eating behaviours. So I wouldn't want the same thing to happen with physical activity in children, young people. Um, maybe we could measure it through the teachers, you know, a teacher's understanding of... Because we, we know if a teacher or a school provide more, the children will be more physically active. Not every child will receive the same dose. But so maybe we can, maybe we can assess it at that level. And, and keep that kind of more formalized assessment away from the kids and, and and or just do it infrequently. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, I think, because as I've got older, I'm 
I'm really interested in wearable technology. Every time I actually won't go for a run now if I don't have a Garmin on because I want to have all the data and stats at the end of it. But when I think about primary school age children, I'm conflicted because I wonder, is this a step too far? And do we need every detail of every movement they make in this school day, which some of the new equipment can do? Or would we be better logging it um, on an app like MyMove, which allows children to log what they've done and then say how they felt about it and would that be enough what, what are your thoughts on children logging how they felt about the physical activity is that important it, yes in one-off studies you know in, in to give us kind of snapshots into what they do and don't like and help to use that information to shape what we provide in the future um i just think in terms of the challenge of logging physical activity is for example, if you do physically active learning with a class, are they going to record that as movement or are they going to record it as learning? You know, and that, that's the challenge. If, if you, there's two, this purposeful physical activity and this physical activity by stealth, children get the majority of their movement and physical activity by stealth. You know, they don't choose to play football on a break time to be physically active. They choose it because it gives them this, you know, a, a sort of cognitive challenge really it's and social interaction so for a child to be able to accurately record everything that they've done is really difficult to understand how they feel about that i think is useful because that like i said earlier it helps us to shape what the physical activity offering is and that you know if we talk about the creating active schools framework that all that data can feed up into the the stakeholder groups who are deciding what the the school provision is going to be yeah and in a few things you touched on then well key theme within that is what's most imp- you know what what is most important what's going to impact change moving forward so the tracking data as long as we use it to make sure we make that change and as andrew mentioned making sure things aren't a fad and it does make you know impactful change in the way that we operate in schools out of schools and, and our attitudes but bet- towards movement um and at what a lot of schools as you're well aware have been battling with over the past 18 months to two years is, is obviously the big mm. c covid um and a lot of schools at the moment you know back with all the children in school hopefully looking forward to um more of a, a normal year shall we say from september but hopefully some changes made so as schools are now starting to look towards september getting back into the rhythm of what's been happening but also keeping one one eye on the fact that children have been in lockdown teachers as well everyone in, everyone involved um in the education sector and other sectors have been had these really troubling times what do you think are the most important aspects that schools need to get right at this moment in time to have the biggest impact or the most benefit for their pupils or, or, or maybe some of the things they need to avoid doing? What kind, of ad, what kind of advice do you think teachers need at this moment to focus on and to avoid? Um, so controversially, um, let's not bring teach school ever. Let's not bring students back into classrooms, sit them down to learn. And let's not extend that classroom learning time because actually what what we'll achieve by that is probably hammering out any love of learning that a child has. Um, so for me, what we should be focusing on is not, and this is where I've got grave concerns, is not just the academic outcomes of children, but their ability to interact with their peers, work with those peers as a team, that they're happy, healthy kids. So I think we should be focusing as much on 
the development of those skills and opportunities as we should around the development of academic outcomes. And I think there's a way we can achieve both. And I'm very biased, but I think physical active learning is that is the way to do that. And actually, in, in a world where we're worried about COVID transmission, where do you want to spend your time? Well, if you look at, look at the government recommendations, everything is about being outside. So actually, is this is this an opportunity for a culture shift within the UK to prioritise outdoor learning? And each school has a PE school sport premium fund. Go and buy waterproofs, you know, buy waterproofs and wellies that can be used at a class level. And then and actually you could probably kit a whole school out with that and build some sheds to keep them in and everything. There you go then there's no barrier to outdoor learning unless it's absolutely torrential rain or you know gale force winds there is then no reason a child can't be outside learning so i think for, for me that's what we'd be recommending and actually some of the work that we're doing in bradford on the jump program that's exactly what the schools are asking for we want to get better in physically active outdoor learning we want to develop our skills so we can keep our pupils outside to not not all the time, obviously, but increase the amount of time they're outside the classroom. Yeah. And, and I mean, thinking about um, my little boy, he's only in preschool at the moment, but the times he's most excited is when he's been outside and they, they, they do forms of physical active learning, which is fantastic because, as you mentioned before, you know, learning through play um, and being heavily involved in, in sport and, and, and a physical activity and exercise enthusiast. It's I love to see the excitement on his face. But as Andrew mentioned, when it gets to about the age of seven, that seems to drop off. So it's a case of making sure that's instilled. But as you then mentioned, it's making sure teachers have the opportunity to instill it. They have the ethos, the the, the social acceptance, as it were, to to um to instill it and we we've asked you some questions through this podcast where you've taken a breath before you've answered and we've probably challenged you so i'm going to ask you one final one now to give some real good takeaways for our listeners and then you can finish this podcast and go have a breather (laughs) um but the final question we always like to give our listeners some key takeaways i mean they've had some um, great ones already but what would your top three tips be for those individuals and those teams who are influencing PE, school sport, physical activity, and I'll throw movement in there as well because I know you're keen on the word movement, um, to support them in embedding physically active learning in their primary school setting. Top three. Top three, right. Number one, and and this may sound extremely biased uh, because it's the work that I'm pushing at the moment, Use the Creating Active Schools framework to understand how to create a whole school approach to physical physical activity and more specifically physically active learning. So if you're going to embed physical, physical active learning in your school, it's looking at that framework and understanding what are the different parts you need to address that go up the school system. You know, so what happens in the lesson? What are the skills does the teacher need? How do you create those positive environments? How do you bring the stakeholders on? And how do you try and get it embedded in policy? So that's your kind of bottom up, top down approach. When we go into physically active learning, um, I think my number one is don't be afraid to go and celebrate if you fail. You know, if you have a go and you fail, brilliant because it shows that you're pushing your boundaries you're trying something new and you're not afraid to move beyond that kind of comfort zone 
um, as long as you learn from the mistakes, you know, I, I've delivered some terrible sessions in schools. I, I have worked in schools previously. I'm not a qualified teacher and I've never pretend to be, but I have worked with initial teacher trainers. Um, I've worked with, with undergraduate students. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've had to deliver physical education lessons on the spot when students don't turn up, you know, those kind of things. And I've done some terrible things that I look back and I go, oh, that was a major fail. But you don't do it next time, you know. And actually, all the times you push the, the boat out and you do have – you try to do something that's different and you succeed with it, wow. You know, the, that's they're the real special sessions for me. So I think uh, have a go and don't be afraid if you fail. Uh, finally is – I've probably got a few, but I'm going to go down to um, build a community of practice. So try not to do it on your own. Try to work with other teachers in your school. Or if you can't find them in your school, try and find a network of teachers that will come together where you can share ideas because that will keep you enthused. It will make sure that you sustain what you're doing and it will help give you new ideas so you can share resources. And you know what, of, of all the professions out there, Teachers are the least selfish profession in terms of giving away fantastic ideas. You know, the amount of things that the, the amount of IP that teachers give away on Facebook, you know, and share in Facebook groups. You know, what a fantastic lesson that maybe the private world should look at and learn from in terms of, you know, things are done for the, the, the betterment of the society, not the furthering from the, themselves as an individual. Yeah, and that rings true with when I support um, subject leaders with you know assessing what's going on, what they want to achieve, and and how. I always ask them the question, what do what do you need? And nine times out of ten, or ninety nine times out of a hundred, they'll answer in the sense of, well, my colleagues could do with this. We need this for my. And it's again, no, no, no. I ask the question of what do, what do you need? And it's just, I think it's the nat- you know, it's the nature of teachers. They're always looking out for the pupils. They're always looking out for what's best for for others. And and I have to challenge and say, no. If you're going to drive this in your school, you you need help. You need something to start to drive it. And and they find it difficult. Which which. In one hand, in one on one hand, is fantastic to see because it's their na- you know it's their nature to help others. But at the other times, it can sometimes be frustrating that they feel awkward asking for something for themselves to then drive for the people. So that that definitely rings true. And I mean, it, regardless of those top three tips, which are fantastic, there's so many gems to take away from this podcast. So I mean, I just want to I just want to say thank you. Um, like I said, I'm I'm on here partly as a listener as well because I wasn't involved in the work yourself and Andrew were doing so the amount I've picked up has been fantastic so thank you so much for your time Andy it's been absolutely brilliant having you on absolute pleasure and love chatting to you both thanks for the invite not a problem at all not a problem and finally for our listeners um, we've talked about the uh, the study that, that we did with with, An- with Andy and Jade and the team to find out more information there'll be links with this podcast for you to, to find out further information with regards to the findings from that study so please have a look in, into it and uh, Andrew, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, just again, thanks for your time, Andy. It's been brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. (laughs) Thanks again for everyone listening and hope to see you on the next episode. Join us next time for the Primary P Huddle podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can connect with us on Twitter at Aspire Sports UK and find out more about us and the family at www.aspire-sports.co.uk and www.aspire-ed.co.uk.